A reading from the book of 2 Samuel. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of a man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks through me, his word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. And now a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came to them and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountains, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the sun of man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many people here have ever heard of the Livermore light bulb? Anybody? You were at the first service, that doesn't count. <laughs> Could I have another hand over here? The Livermore light bulb? One, that's about how many there, oh, two, good, three, excellent, excellent. We have a four, wonderful. Anybody else thinking about it? The Livermore light bulb. Now, Livermore, of course, is in Northern California, up in the Bay Area. There's a light bulb there. In 1901, this 60-watt light bulb was installed in a socket in fire station number six, and it still burns today. We've been talking about light 
since the beginning of the year. Light that reveals, light that explains, light that illuminates, light that stands as one of our most potent metaphors for God. We in our lives are always looking for light, light to clear away the confusion in our minds, light to sweep away the fear in our hearts, light that will help us see a path forward, light that will help us get through the darkness of our lives. It's almost impossible to describe all the ways in which we are looking for light, eternal light, light that never goes away. We can argue that the story of the Old Testament is a story of people looking for just that kind of light. In the beginning, at the creation, as Riley spoke about a moment ago, God created all things. All things were perfect. All things were beautiful. All things were a reflection and an expression of the imago Dei, the image of God. Among those things was light. But then, like all things in creation, the light was distorted with the fall. And I think you can make the case that the rest of the story of the Old Testament is about people looking for that light again. We read a portion of Scripture from 2 Samuel. The story that Samuel tells us is a story about the great judge Samuel who anointed the first king of Israel, Saul, and then Saul was replaced by David. The story we've read from Samuel really is not so much a story, but something like a reflection on David's life. Some people suggest that David himself wrote the first draft of this retrospective on who David was, on what David had done, on what David was all about. And it makes sense that it could have been that. What we read in 2 Samuel is a description of whom Israel would later come to understand was the man that was its greatest king. Israel had lots of kings. David was the second. It was not good news for Israel that the best king they would ever have came so early in their history, but, but that's the way it was. Who was this King David? This brief description of him we just read tells us that David was anointed by God. He had a heart for God. God was doing something very special in David's life, not just for David, but for the whole kingdom of Israel. Historically, we know that David was the greatest king because David managed to unite the 12 tribes of Israel into a confederated whole, something like pulling the 13 colonies together in our own history. David managed to get these 12 contentious tribes together so that they could fight off their enemies and share a common economy, and David established Jerusalem as the capital of the nation. Under David's leadership, Israel had it as good as Israel ever would have it. And so history's judgment on David is that David was a great king. 
the greatest king of all of Israel's history. And so the final judgment on David speaks to us in this way. It says that David was like the light of morning, like the sun rising. A good king, even a great king. Now, some of us in this room know more about the story of David, though, and, and we want to say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. David had his flaws. David had his problems. David didn't always make the right decisions. In fact, sometimes David imperiled the security and safety of the whole nation. Here's an interesting fact about David. He was a human being. <laughs> this light of Israel was just a human being. Flawed, imperfect, full of that which was not light. And then, of course, as a human being, David died. So much for the light of Israel. So Israel kept looking, they kept waiting and hoping that someday another David would arise, another great leader, another great king who would give them the blessings of living life in this world as they believed God meant them to live. We know the rest of the story for the next thousand years that that never really happened. And so as we pick up the story of Israel again, a thousand years after David, we come to that period of history when a new teacher arrives on the scene, a new preacher, a new healer, someone who has a heart for God, someone who teaches with the wisdom of God, someone who has that special something in him that some folks at least begin to wonder or suspect or perhaps even hope that a new David has arisen. Jesus, of course. Fairly early on in the story of Jesus, before we know everything about his life, we are told that one day Jesus takes the three disciples who are closest to him, Peter and James and John, and he goes up onto a mountain. Right there we know something big's going to happen. They've gone up the mountain. On the mountain, something happens that I will not even try to explain to you. On the mountain, something happens that many people today simply dismiss as a figment of the imagination of Matthew and the other writers of the Gospels. Some suggest that this story was created out of whole cloth later on as a way of building up Jesus' reputation, as a way of trying to convince people to pay attention to him. And I suppose that's possible. If we're going to be intellectually honest, we have to admit that's possible, that the transfiguration of Christ is all a lie. I can't go that far, and perhaps you can't either. Perhaps you're like me, and you say, wait a minute. If I can believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, 
then maybe I also can believe that something as amazing, as otherworldly, as supernatural, as divine as the transfiguration could have happened, and in fact did happen. What did happen in the transfiguration? Well, we know only what we're told. Jesus was on the mountain and suddenly a great light appeared. He was the light. He shone like human beings normally don't shine. <laughs> and that really shouldn't surprise us because every human religion, Jewish or Christian or not, every human religion in some way, shape, or form wants to talk about the presence of the divine in terms of great light. Jesus is transfigured. He is changed. The Greek word used here is the same word that we use to derive metamorphosis. The true nature of who Jesus is reveals itself in this amazing experience. And if we take it at face value, and if we relate it to so many thousands, perhaps even millions of other experiences reported in the subsequent history of faith, we realize that some very, very big things are going on here. I want to lift up just two crucial elements of this story for us this morning. And the first has to do with the light that appears not just in Jesus, but the light that appears in the cloud and the voice that speaks out of the cloud, the voice of God. This is my son, the beloved with him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. When Jesus is baptized, we're told that something similar happens. God appears in a cloud and God speaks and said, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. But now in the transfiguration, we have three more little words. Listen to him. As if it's not enough that we see this amazing metamorphosis occur, this amazing affirmation of the divine nature and character of Jesus. God makes it perfectly clear. It's almost a what part of this don't you get kind of statement. <laughs> Listen to him. You see, Christians believe that Jesus is the singular and supreme expression and embodiment and presence of God in the world with us. Only Jesus. Jesus alone. Now God reveals himself only rarely in such direct and powerful and unmistakable ways, but God needed to do that, especially for the leaders of the disciples, because most of the rest of the story is about how Jesus is persecuted, about how Jesus is resisted, eventually how Jesus is tried and convicted and executed, and they need to remember this story on the mountaintop about who Jesus really is. They needed that for their faith, and sometimes we need it for our own. God doesn't always give us that experience. 
I've had a couple that are close to it. I know many others who have. There's a huge history. There's a body of literature of those who have reported some kind of amazing experience with God. Just enough so that we can tell everybody else about it. Just enough so that we can all hang on to it and say, yes, there is something special going on there. But the whole point of it is to remind us of this important, absolutely critical truth that Jesus alone is the Son of God and that we need to listen to him. There's another aspect I want to highlight for us, and that has to do with the other two folks who show up in this experience, Moses and Elijah. Now, we've talked a lot about David. David was a big deal for the Old Testament. Two of the other folks in the Old Testament who are a big deal are Moses and Elijah. It's quite telling that Moses and Elijah come and visit with Jesus. Moses and Elijah have never come and talked with me. Have they ever talked with you? They say you know a person by the company he keeps. Jesus is keeping pretty good company here. Even Moses and Elijah, Moses the great deliverer of the people from Egyptian slavery, Elijah the great prophet and arguably the greatest prophet of all who was known to walk every moment of his life with God. Moses and Elijah show up, and that gets the attention of the disciples for sure, as if it's not enough that Jesus is transfigured. Now we've got Moses and Elijah there. Peter doesn't know what to do, but that never stops Peter from doing something. He says to Jesus, let's, let's build some little tabernacles here. Let's build some little memorials to this experience. And Jesus kind of ignores Peter, and, and their other disciples are afraid, rightly so. If someone all of a sudden lights up in your presence, you're not going to be sure what's going on. The other disciples are afraid. Jesus goes to them. They have thrown themselves down on the ground. He says, don't be afraid. They rise up and they see that Moses and Elijah aren't there anymore. They're only left with Jesus. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. They didn't need to focus on Moses and Elijah. They needed to focus on Jesus himself alone. That's what every disciple of Jesus is called to do, to look to Jesus, Jesus alone, in order to see and know the light that has come into our world and the light that transforms our lives. Now, it's easy to stand here and say, that's what we got to do. But believe me, I know some of the challenges involved with that. It can be very hard sometimes to keep our focus on Jesus. I do not sit every moment of my life thinking about Jesus. Neither do you. We lose interest in Jesus. We start to think we know everything there is to know about Jesus. But, but there we have it, that call from God to keep looking at Jesus. I've learned in my life that the more consistently I look only at Jesus, the better I do. That's really no surprise, I suppose. Let me tell you something else about the Livermore light bulb. Scientists have studied this light bulb for a long time. They've tried to figure out why it has lasted so long. Well, one of their theories is because, with just a few minor exceptions, since 1901, the light bulb has never been turned off. 
We know that it's hard on a light bulb to turn it off and on and off and on. Now, I'm not saying turn on all the lights and just leave them on forever. <laughs> SDG&E would love that, wouldn't they? <laughs> but that's the reason, one of them at least, that the bulb has lasted so long. It's been turned on and it's been left on. And the best way that you and I can have the best relationship with Jesus is to turn it on and just leave it on. Stay with him. One of the other problems that we have in, in looking at Jesus all the time is not just the problem of consistency, but the problem of sometimes thinking that maybe there's more than Jesus, maybe even something better than Jesus. It's so tempting to study the latest philosopher or look at the newest beliefs and ideas about the reality of the world and who we're supposed to be. Even sometimes great Christian philosophers and theologians and leaders, we get more enamored with them than we do with Jesus. But eventually we have to come back just to Jesus and Jesus alone. We need to keep our heart centered on him and on him alone. It really is a matter of love. Do we love Jesus with our whole heart and mind and strength and soul? Another reason, by the way, that scientists think the Livermore light bulb has such a long life, and it's not over yet, we don't know how long it's going to go, but the Livermore light bulb has filaments inside of it that are eight times thicker than a normal light bulb. That says to me that it's got a really strong heart. And that's what we need to have for Jesus, a really strong heart that looks only and always to him. One final thing about this business of looking always only at Jesus, and that is that we need help to do it. None of us are so strong, none of us are so holy, none of us are so perfect that we don't need other people sometimes to turn our heads back so that we focus on Jesus and to turn our hearts back so that we focus on Jesus. We need other people to remind us about Jesus, to model Jesus, to teach us about Jesus. That's why Jesus is called disciples together. That's why Jesus calls us together. It does take a village. One last fact about the Livermore light bulb, and then that's all the theology I can get out of that stupid little piece of glass, okay? <laughs> the Livermore light bulb has its own committee. There is a special group of people that are commissioned with the care and feeding and protection of that light bulb. I think that's kind of cool. How many light bulbs do you know that has its own posse, its own people that are taking care of it? But that's what it takes. It takes a group of people. It takes a family of people. It takes a community of people. And so that's why we do this. That's why we come to this table over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many times I've celebrated communion. Most of you can't tell me how many times you've taken communion. All we know is that when we come to this table, that at this table we meet other people who are sitting around it who want to follow Jesus. And we meet other people who need to be reminded that we need to look at Jesus. And we meet Jesus himself. In the faces and hearts and love and lives of those who follow. And in that special way that only Jesus himself can accomplish as he comes 
and is with us here. If you want to have eternal light for your life, then turn your eyes on Jesus. There's no better way than at the table that he set, the table that belongs to him, the table to which, ministering in his name, I invite you now. Come to this table and be with Jesus again. Amen.